Lauren. Mike. Lauren, what is your dating app of choice? Wow, we're going there. I I mean, I would probably have to say Clubhouse because where else would I go to get info about crypto and NFTs and thought leadership and um, have a lullaby sung to me every night? (laughs) Well, you can't see this because you're listening to it, but I'm flashing my microphone on and off very quickly right now. PTR. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Gadget Lab. I'm Michael Calori, a senior editor at Wired. And I'm Lauren Good. I'm a senior writer at Wired. We are also joined this week by Wired senior writer and our former co-host, Ariel Pardes. Hi, you guys. Yay, Ariel's back. So today we are talking about online dating and how tech has changed how people build and end relationships. Later on in the show, we're going to talk about dating apps and how people have used them during the pandemic. But first, Lauren... This week, you wrote a very personal story about a breakup and how sites like Pinterest and Google Photos would not let you forget it. Please tell us about the experience you had. Uh, How much time do you have? (laughs) (laughs) About an hour. Okay. (laughs) All right. Um, So um, as I wrote on Wired.com, I was in a relationship for a very long time, about eight years, and we were engaged. And in May of 2019, Um, we broke up. And I not only called off the relationship, but in the process of doing that, canceled the wedding that we had almost fully planned at that point, because we um, got engaged and were sort of determined to get married pretty quickly. So so we went into, you know, rapid planning mode. Um, And you know, that in itself was uh, its own kind of traumatic experience. I'm sure a lot of people have had similar experiences, whether the dissolution of a long-term partnership or a divorce. And I think that that will always involve some kind of grieving process for folks, um, which, you know, I like to say may or may not be a linear path because grief has a, a funny way of sort of sneaking up on you. But what I started to experience was that because of the digital footprint, that I'd left in my life, particularly over the past decade, as I've been writing about uh, the technology industry and technology products, the digital footprint I left was so massive that I was getting constant reminders, and I still am, frankly, of this relationship, and not just the relationship, but the wedding, the aborted wedding that you know had never really happened. Um, and you know, at one point, actually, this kind of goes back to Ariel. Um, it was shortly after the breakup, and Ariel and another Wired editor, Jason Kay, and I went and grabbed some drinks after work. This is back when we were in offices, and we were in our office in Soma. And um, you know, I started telling them a little bit about what had happened, and everything was still fresh. And they said, "You should write about it." Um, of course, people listening to this are going, "Wow, what a bunch of journalists!" Like <laughs> everything is, you know, everything is copy, as Nora Ephron said famously. So, um, you know, and I thought, "Oh, well, like who wants to read about this?" And and we sort of teased out some ideas, but honestly, it was just still too new at the time, and I, I couldn't really get my head around it. So later in 2020, I revisited the idea. Of course, at this point, we were in the midst of a pandemic, and that came with its own terrible, you know, grief and sadness and loss and stress. And I and I started trying to write about what had happened in 2019, you know, through the context of sort of our new world and, and all these photo memories and ads I was still seeing. Um, and then that became the story that ran this week. And you, you know, this is not a unique experience, right? A lot of other people have experienced this where somebody, they lose somebody in their life, 
and then their photo roll and their Facebook feed just still has all these photos. But you do have sort of a unique experience because, like you said, you're a technology journalist, you test products as part of your job. So you have all of this stuff, like you have smart displays around your house. You belong to almost every social network that has ever existed, and you've uploaded data to all of those places. Uh, you have a much larger, I think, I would, I would guess, digital footprint than than most people. Yeah, and not only that, but you know, our relationship was somewhat consumed by technology. My ex works in tech, and he works in the uh, cybersecurity field. So I was covering consumer primarily, and his world was very different. But it's one of the things that we connected on right off the bat when we started dating in 2011. And one of the anecdotes I include in this story is, you know, he went along with me when I was testing a new wallet app. I was looking for a retail store that would accept this new app so I could try it out and write about it. And it was Square, actually. I mean, it was like so early on. Um, it's funny now to think back of, you know, the earliest days of like Instagram, right? Like, like I have a photo with Kevin from Instagram on my Instagram. And it's one of the first photos because I was like simultaneously writing about these products and a user of them. And, and so I do have this massive digital footprint and it's it has always been a little bit alarming to me, but it was really underscored by this experience. And partly what I was trying to unpack with this story is that there are kind of two, at least two layers to this problem, right, of what we leave behind and what we're reminded of, which is that there was kind of this like above board or surface level reminder that I would get constantly in consumer facing applications. And, and I'm referring to things like, Google Photos putting together a photo collage for you and reminding you of this day three years ago or Facebook giving you on this day notifications or Apple Photos like, you know, my, my ex's face would sometimes pop up on my Apple Watch on my wrist because Apple decided that was a good time to show me that photo memory. Um, and, and Time Hop, I think, is one of the best examples of this. And that that's really like you understand as it's happening what is going on to an extent. But then also... I tried to sort of understand the complicated labyrinth of ad networks, which you don't really see how they work, right? You go to a website and you indicate that you're doing something like getting married or planning a wedding or having a baby. And you're sending these signals through the internet to marketers and they're taking those signals and running with them and sending you more content like that. And you just kind of have no idea how it's actually happening. And in that part, you know, I still, after months of researching and I still don't fully understand it frankly but like in the in the internet world I'm still getting married basically yeah Lauren I think what's so difficult about this story is that as you are trying to move on and you're trying to extract yourself from these reminders it's really impossible um I mean forget the ads for a minute it's it's not um, possible to tell Pinterest that you're no longer getting married. It's not possible to tell Google Photos that um, you'd really rather not see a reminder of your ex from three years ago on this day. Um, and I think that's such an interesting problem that you've you've exposed in this story that I think is so painful for so many different reasons. Um, but you actually talk to many of the technologists who have sort of failed to account for that. Um, in your story, you have this amazing quote from Omar Sayal, who runs the core product at Pinterest, who you know, acknowledges that this is a real problem. Um, he calls it the, the miscarriage problem or the bias of the majority problem, which is that these products are built 
to surface memories uh, because most people find that really lovely, um, failing to account for the fringe cases um, when it can be really, really painful. And my, my question is, you know, how are these companies starting to deal with that? Do you think there's an acknowledgement that, um, you know, these, these products are not one size fits all and that for people like you, this can be quite painful? That's a good question, because when I first met with Pinterest, it was back in October of 2019. At that point, I'd been single and the wedding planning was in the rear view mirror for probably about five months at that point. And Pinterest was aware of the problem. In fact, they said that this was one of their top five complaints that they had been getting from users. And so they had been spending the past several months trying to work on a solution for it. And the problem is what you described, right? That the majority of users on a site may have a positive experience. They're getting the kind of transaction they want out of it, or they're being shown the photos that they actually find pleasing or joyful in some way. But there is that you know, minority of users who are having a negative experience. And the problem is that the negative experience is really an outsized negative experience. It's really painful or really terrible or really dissatisfying in some way. And so they had been working on it, but what I sort of saw that day was a drop down menu from Pinterest that was like, look, you can tune your home feed and now you can unselect entire topics. Like you can unselect like weddings um, or baby instead of, or nursery, instead of going through and unselecting individual pins. And I you know, wrote in the story that, that to me was a very Facebookian solution in the same way that Facebook every so often says, we've revamped our privacy settings. And then you, they sort of changed their menu options. Um, and then since then, you know, Pinterest Pinterest has shared some data indicating that they are seeing a little bit more customer satisfaction and they think that they're improving it. And that's all well and fine. But I think with like really, really personal experiences, most people don't want to just hear about like whether you've, you know, improved the problem by 20%. They just want to know that their grief isn't being, you know, monetized in a terrible way um, and that they're not they, that they could possibly have a more uncluttered experience um, on these websites because it can be really traumatic to see some of some of this content resurface so yeah I think sorry that's a really long answer to your question Ariel but I think you know when I, when I spoke to the folks at Google for example too about Google Photos you know, they talk about the algorithms and how the algorithms are never going to be perfect they're trying to do things like account for if there's um, a car accident or an ambulance appearing in a photo or if it appears to be a hospital photo. Um, the algorithms won't resurface that in your feed. But one of the questions I had was, well, what if the hospital photo is a happy photo, right? What if it means someone's there's a baby that's been born or um, it's just, you know, it's un it's an uncomplicated photo um, and the algorithms just they don't know that much yet. It's not a very nuanced thing. You know, that's that's a, a good example of them using computer vision, right, to block mm -hmm. things from you. And there's also the tool that you're seeing more and more now in uh, apps that collect photos where they can use computer vision and facial recognition to allow you to identify people that you don't want to see anymore. So you can like tap on somebody's face and say, never show me a photo with this person's face in it. You can. And that I did actually find to be fairly effective particularly with Apple photos. Once I did that, you know, the, I have an Apple photo album of, you know, 16,000, more than 16,000 photos at this point and a thousand videos. And I did go through and um, into my, fa I think it's called favorite people maybe, or something like that in the, in the photo app. And I unselected my ex's face and, and that did help 
a little bit, I think. Like I'm no longer seeing quite as much content in like my iPad widget or on my Apple Watch pop up with those photo reminders. But the really interesting thing about that is that you can't opt out of photo memories entirely in Apple Photos. If you're using Apple Photos, that is one of the features you're just opted into. Or like Google said, for example, you can not only untag faces, but you can indicate there's a time period from which you don't want to see memories. But as I note in the story, that's great. But what if the time period is eight years or longer? Are you, are you just going to basically say, I don't want to see any of these photos? Um, so there are some controls now to to try to kind of fine tune your experience, but they're really not great. It's also more complicated than just remembering or forgetting, right? You you mentioned in your story that there are photos that remind you of your wedding that still make you happy, like a photo of you trying on wedding dresses with your mom and you're embracing each other. And sure, the the fact of a white dress reminds you of a painful experience, but it doesn't wholesale detract from the fact that you're hugging someone you love who you haven't been able to see in a long time. And that's a photo that I'm sure you're happy, you know, when it surfaces. And um, I, I guess that sort of gets at the, the complicated human nature of what we want to remember and what we want to forget, which, you know, can be hard to grapple with in your own heart and mind, let alone, you know, in the software on your iPad. Right. And, you know, one thing that we've seen happen a lot this year is people sharing photos online or with friends or even in our work groups of, hey, remember when, you know, before the pandemic, we used to be all together in the office or at the <laughs> bar, or remember we took that fun vacation. And, um, you know, for some people, it kind of like one woman wrote to me and said it kind of makes her heart ache during this mm. time when it pops up in Google mm. Photos. But for a lot of people, it's 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 hope. It's like, hey, remember we did this fun thing? I think maybe we're going to be able to do that together again someday. Um, I need something to look forward to, and this is making me happy, or I really miss my friends, and I'm so glad this 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 party was such a good time. I'm so glad this surfaced. Um, and so I don't think, you know, memory the memory features are entirely terrible. I just think that we should be able to opt in or out of them or have more controls over how they actually work. Amen. Well, Lauren, thank you for sharing your story with us and with the Wired readers. Uh, we're going to take a break right now. And when we come back, we're going to talk about starting new relationships. Welcome back. We have talked about breakups and how they can linger in our always connected world. But the same devices that auto-regurgitate the painful memories can also be used to find new and hopefully less painful human connections. The usage of dating apps has skyrocketed during the pandemic, despite the need for social distancing. It turns out that a lot of people are feeling kind of lonely, and they're looking to meet new people. Now, Ariel, you profiled Shar Duby for Wired. She's the CEO of The Match Group, which owns most of the big dating apps. Tell us about her journey. Shar Duby is the most powerful tech CEO you've probably never heard of. Um, Match Group, most people don't know this, but Match Group owns Match.com, OkCupid, Tinder, Hinge, Plenty of Fish, and about a dozen other dating apps uh, around the world. They own 
dating apps in Egypt. They own dating apps in Japan. They own dating apps that are um, specifically for Latino users, specifically for Muslim users, specifically for Christian users. Um, it's it's truly incredible the size of this empire. It sounds like they're polyaparous. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Exactly. Exactly. And Shar, who has worked at the company for about 15 years, became the chief executive last March, just as the coronavirus pandemic um, threatened to sort of upend dating as we knew it. Um, so I became very fascinated with um, Shar as a person, with the challenge that she faced in stepping into the CEO role, um, and also about what the future of dating looked like for this company that has just a completely outsized effect on what modern love looks like today. I want to hear more about Shar's journey, but how did Match just come to own this whole dating experience? Yeah, so Match.com is uh, one of the oldest modern dating sites. And I say modern dating sites because there are there were dating sites that existed as far back as the 1960s. Pretty much as soon as computers are invented, people are trying to figure out ways to use them to, to find love. Um, but Match.com uh, was really the first uh, dating app to utilize the internet in, in a profound way in this um, came about in 1995. And so from there, the company has grown just tremendously and acquired lots of other brands along the way. So of the major dating apps that Match Group now owns, some of them were homegrown. So Tinder, for example, is a startup that came out of um, actually like an internal incubator that the Match Group owns. Um, whereas other ones like Hinge and OkCupid were standalone apps that were then later acquired by the company. Um, but along the way, it's kind of become this like mass entity of, um, you know, of, of dating power. Um, and they do this really clever thing, which is that most people don't know all these apps are owned by the same company. And so they kind of play off each other's weaknesses. So you may notice that Hinge markets itself as an app for people who are tired of swiping on Tinder and want to find something more long lasting. Um, whereas Tinder markets itself as something that's like more modern and fun and interesting. Um, and I've seen ads for Tinder that sort of say like, you know, just because it doesn't last forever doesn't mean it's not meaningful, which is kind of like a jab at like people who might be using like, okay, Cupid. So there's this like interesting cyclical nature of the the portfolio, um, which in part is why it's it's worth so much because when one one app sort of bleeds users, another app can then collect them and all of the money stays in, in this one empire, which is now worth billions of dollars. Okay, uh, I want to bring it back to Shar Duby for a moment. Uh, now, she's the CEO of this wildly important company with all of these products. What is her management and leadership style like? Mm. Shar is very straightforward. She's very data-driven. She can even seem a bit stoic in matters of love, which is very different from the Match Group's previous CEO, Mandy Ginsburg, who was super effusive and emotive and if you were single, she might try to set you up on a date. Um, Char, Char is all about the, the numbers, and this has served her very well in her career. And along the way, she's come to some really keen insights about what it is that helps people actually find love through the internet. So, for example, she was largely responsible for what is now Match.com's key feature, which is called the Daily Five, um, which is an algorithmic 
matching product that shows you five users that you're likely to like based on two different things. One is what you say your preferences are. And the second is what your preferences seem to be based on your behavior on the site. So a lot of people will say they, you know, only want to date someone who's six foot tall, but then they end up swiping around on profiles that are actually for shorter men. So this algorithmic idea is that you can kind of capture both what people say they want and what they actually want and and maybe get them closer to um, someone who in in real life uh, works for them. Char was also a really early advocate of video dating, which came in handy this year during the pandemic, uh, when I think lots of people have tried video dates for the very first time. Um, But actually, back in the early 2000s, Char already had this idea that, you know, there's this gap between what we see on someone's profile online and the person that we meet in the bar in real life. Um, And that distance can be really far. Like sometimes people don't look anything like their photos. Sometimes there's no chemistry. Um, Sometimes there's just nothing to talk about. You actually don't have anything in common. And I think this is why a lot of people feel discouraged with online dating is that, you know, the people are actually meeting up with are are nothing like the person they want to go on a date with. Um, and so as early as 2010, Char had this idea that you could, you could maybe build in a product that got people halfway there, um, which is to have them have a conversation on video um, on their computer before they wasted their time, you know, driving out to a bar and, you know, getting gussied up and then, you know, having to pay for drinks. Um, And of course, when Char first pitched this idea, you know, it wasn't very popular, but fast forward to 2020, um, when she had to step into this incredibly challenging environment as chief executive, um, those insights and those instincts proved really useful in trying to push the dating industry past the pandemic and into the future. So this is a lot of data about people. Um, we can't escape the algorithms that much we know <laughs> at this point. So how much of our personal data are these apps actually getting and storing and how concerned about that should we be? And I, I'm asking this for a friend. (laughs) Uh, I think that is a valid concern. Um, You know, the totality of that, I'm not sure, to be honest. Um, I think any anything you're doing online is uh, is is liable to be used against you Um, with mature products. I think there's maybe some reason to relax only in the sense that these apps are not making their revenue from ads. So your data is valuable to them, but it's not as valuable to them as it might be to say a social media company that is offering its products for free and is paying for things by selling your data to marketers. Um, Actually 97% of Match Group revenue comes from subscriptions, which is people paying to use uh, specific features on on websites or apps um, that get them closer to meeting someone they really like. Um, so I found that pretty interesting. Um, and that, by the way, is another Shardubi invention. She is the woman responsible for Tinder Gold, which is the, the key product um, that has made Tinder a real cash cow. This is a suite of services you can pay a monthly fee for that get you you know, all kinds of cool things. Like you get to see who swiped on you first. You get to swipe in different locations. Um, it turns out people are really willing to pay money for that. Uh, if it, if it gets them a little closer to true love or lust. Um, and so that's been their way of making money. Um, I mean, does that mean they're not collecting data on you? I don't, 
I don't think so, but it does mean that your data is maybe not as much of a lifeline to their bottom line as it is for a company like Facebook, which also has a dating app. Maybe Wired should start a dating app. <laughs> or maybe we should bring in someone like Shar to help drive our subscriptions. She, she seems to be quite good at it. <laughs> um, Ariel, I have one final question for you, which is that we are rapidly approaching our big post-pandemic summer. There will be tens of millions of singles in this country who are vaccinated and who are bursting at the seams to get back out there. Uh, what's going to happen? How is online dating going to change? Ah, that's, that's the billion dollar question. Well, I think most people who wanted to talk about how dating was going to change during the pandemic found themselves really surprised by the fact that you know, a year of social isolation didn't actually torpedo any of these apps. It, it buoyed them. Um, the last year for the match group, as well as for other um, competitors like eHarmony um, or Bumble, this was an incredibly lucrative year for all of these apps um, and a year when engagement was way, way, way up, which I think a lot of people found surprising. And the takeaway there, I think, is that in a time when people are feeling lonely, in a time when people are feeling cut off, like these services provide a way to feel a little more connected and whether or not that connection is genuine or leads to anything, um, you know, it's something. Um, and so I think it's important to note that we're coming off of a year when there's never been more attention or activity on dating apps. Um, and that I think makes a strong case for why it's only going to go up in the summer uh, once people can start meeting in person again, um, I see no reason as to why people would stop using a dating app that they had gotten really into during the pandemic, just because they're able to be outside now. I mean, I think that's that's even more of a reason um, to continue. Um, to your point, there's a lot that's changing about dating right now. Um, I've heard from some younger users that video dating is something they plan to continue using well into the future because it saves you that sort of awkward, you know, are you like what you were on paper moment. Um, and so I think that's like a change that might be more permanent. Um, I think people have gotten a little more intentional about what they're actually looking for in the last year. So that's likely to spill over. Um, and then, you know, because this has been such a hot year for dating apps, there are tons of new little startups and ideas about how to make dating better. And so I think those are going to really explode in the months to come. Um, so we'll, we'll just have to find out. But uh, Lauren, I think you're going to have to be our, our woman on the ground to let us know what the post-pandemic summer really looks like for people who are using online dating. And I, you have to promise that you're going to tell us in some month's time what it's like out there. I'm kind of afraid to tell you and Jason Kay because you guys will <laughs> nudge me into another story. And also in my story, I did note that I would like to live slightly more offline these days. So I'll report back, but maybe not on the Gadget Lab just yet. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Um, I should mention that you can read both of these stories that we've discussed today, uh, Ariel's profile of Shar Doobie and Lauren's story about digital forgetting. They're both on the web right now at Wired.com. And if you subscribe to the print edition of Wired, both of those stories appear in our May issue, which should show up in your mailbox in about a week. All right. Well, let's take a break. And when we come back, we'll do our recommendations. All right, so before we get to our recommendations segment, we have a special announcement. This show that you're listening to right now is episode 499 of Gadget Lab 
which means that next week we will be celebrating our 500th episode of this here little old podcast. We're going to take a break from the usual format of the show next week, and we want to bring you a special episode. We will be visited by the ghosts of Christmas's past, old <laughs> friends, familiar voices. We'll do a little insider look at the history of the show. We'll talk a little bit about the history of Wired. There might be some drinking. I'm not making any promises, but just don't miss it. This is so exciting. Okay, let's get to recommendations. Ariel, as our guest, you get to go first. Tell us what you brought. Okay, I recommend looking up your horoscope on astrologyzone.com. Now, stay with me, stay with me. I don't care if you believe in astrology. I really don't. This isn't about buying into magical thinking. This is about giving yourself permission to think about the future, which for so long has felt scary and uncertain and now can be good again. Horoscopes can can let you imagine your future in very specific ways, even if you reject everything the astrologer tells you. Um, and I think this is an important skill, uh, especially now as we look toward the summer and the post-vaccination months ahead. So what sets Astrology Zone apart? Ah, I'm glad you asked. So I like astrologyzone.com because one, it has a hilarious name that makes it sound like you're making fun of yourself. Um, and second, it's written by an astrologer named Susan Miller, who is just totally bonkers and writes these like deranged pages long horoscopes every month. So you just have to check once a month and you get like six pages of highly detailed, highly specific predictions for your sign. Um, I find them really entertaining. Mine for April correctly surmised that I had just wrapped up a big work project in March and it let me know that my house of awards and achievements would be sparkling. So that's nice. And it also told me that uh, following the new moon this month, I would be presented with an exciting new assignment that I must keep secret. So that's what I'm looking forward to right now. Uh, the new moon is April 11th. I can't wait to get my new assignment. And um, I'm grateful to Susan Miller for giving me that hope for the future. This is pretty amazing. I'm reading mine right now, and it's it's a little bit ominous. It says, April will be a good, cheerful, productive month until we get to the monster full moon in Scorpio on April 26th. What does it all mean, Ariel? Keep reading. Keep reading. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Maybe after the show. Oh, okay. Mike, what's yours? My sign? <laughs> no, we all know you're a Capricorn. You wear it on your sleeve. What's your recommendation? I would like to recommend a Substack newsletter written by E. Jean Carroll. So you may know who E. Jean Carroll is. If you do not, uh, she is one of the longest running advice columnists uh, in America. I think maybe the longest running. She had a column called Ask E. Jean. It was in L magazine. It started in the 90s. Right up until 2019, it ran in L. Uh, you may remember that she accused Donald Trump of sexual assault, which got her kind of ostracized from the publishing world for a little bit. She wrote a book. Uh, it was a very good book. She is not publishing uh, a advice column in any major publication. She has gone to Substack. So now you can subscribe and get eGene every week as a Substack newsletter. I am a subscriber. It, the first issue came out this week and it is fantastic. Uh, so that's my recommendation. You get all kinds of really great, snappy, fun writing. You get actual really good advice. Uh, and you get those, uh, you know, somewhat unhinged 
uh, pleas for help that come in from the public that you can't help but uh, laugh at as you read the lovely responses that she writes. So that is my that is my recommendation. I cannot wait to read this. I saw this announced on Twitter recently and just did a silent cheer in my head. <laughs> Subscribe. Subscribe. Lauren, what's your recommendation? My recommendation is a recycled one from an earlier Gadget Lab. You might recall that a few weeks ago we had Kate Nibs on to break down the wild world of NFTs. And at the end of that episode, Kate Nibs recommended a book. I took her recommendation seriously. I've read it. It's a beautiful book. It's called Clara and the Sun. It's written by Nobel laureate Kazuo Ishiguro. He's also written several other novels. I have not read any of his earlier work, but um, Clara and the Sun is the story of an AF, an artificial friend, as it's known, um, who uh, befriends the girl whose family she joins, basically, in this world that that, uh, Ishiguro writes about. These families all um, kind of purchase these AFs, um, you know, envisioning them as some kind of like humanoid robot. Uh, for their children to, you know, have companions, and also for some assistance and that kind of thing. And this, um, this particular AF, Clara, is an incredibly um, astute and observational robot, and um, actually starts to perceive and interpret and feel emotions, which is what makes it interesting. And it's just a really uh, brilliant and, and beautiful book about the, the human experience. Um, and I guess the human the human-AI experience in our new world. So I recommend Clara and the Sun. Yes. And after you finish the book or before, you can also read uh, a fantastic interview that our colleague Will Knight did about the book with the author on Wired.com. It's a really interesting conversation about artificial intelligence and literature and the future um, between two, you know, men who used to live in England. (laughs) (laughs) We'll link to that in the show notes. Absolutely. I'm really looking forward to reading this book, but it's about like 19th on my list. So I'm sure I'm going to be the last person in this circle to read the book as I am with most books. (laughs) I also bought the Ram Dass book that you recommended, Mike, a few episodes prior to that, but I haven't cracked that open yet. The cover is amazing, isn't it? It's beautiful. In fact, I'll give it to you when I'm done with it because it's such a beautiful book. Oh, um, I have it. On, I bought it on the Kindle. Thanks. Of course you did. I appreciate it. <laughs> All right. Well, that is our show for the week. Thank you again to Ariel Pardes for joining us. It's an honor just to be nominated. <laughs> <laughs> it was so fun to have you back. You can claim your award from the person in the bunny suit standing outside your apartment right now. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, And thank you all for listening. If you have feedback, you can find all of us on Twitter. Just check the show notes. This show is produced by Boone Ashworth. Goodbye. And we'll be back with our special 500th episode next week. Hi, everyone. Michael from Gadget Lab here. I want to tell you about our friends over at The Big Take Podcast from Bloomberg News. Each weekday, they bring you one important story from their global newsroom, like how AI will upend your life, or why China's targeting the US dollar, and maybe how Joe Biden plans to take on Donald Trump. Oh boy. Check out The Big Take, a daily podcast from Bloomberg, wherever you listen.